Welcome back to Folk Pie. This is Liam Noble coming to you from Burlington, Vermont, the city that turns into a flippin' tundra every year. Or at least it was when I wrote the script. Now that I'm recording it, it's a balmy 40 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Climate yarn crazy, y'all. You stumbled upon episode two in our medieval Florence series. Introducing the rise of the city of Florence. Last time, we left off having established the political mania that gave rise to Florence as a republic of merchants. This episode, we're talking about the dreaded Black Plague, the scars it would leave, and how it would shake things up in a totally unpredictable but structurally very interesting kind of way that really contextualizes Florence existing within a diverse and interconnected medieval world. But first, we're talking about a crisis that would leave an indelible mark on the city, the Duke of Athens crisis. An interloping nobleman who gets invited to the city to sort things out and basically schemes to cement himself in power. I'm going to introduce him to you now. His name is Count Walter the Sitz of Brienne. He's a French low aristocrat, a warrior and leader of troops. According to stories, he's strong-willed, self-assured of his right to rule, and secure in his family's old titles passed to him. That's basically nobility cliche. And he took it all for granted. He came from a long line of crusading warrior aristocrats, like uh, genuinely crusading in the sense of the Christian Crusades. And yeah, he basically becomes dictator of Florence for about a couple wild months. And what happens next is, well, you'll have to sit back wherever you are and listen. The place, the place, place. La Republica Frenzy. Frenzy. The time, the brutal 1300s. Count Walter the Sitzes, blue blood French family, was totally wrapped up in the world politics of their century. They were the late crusaders. Walter's grandfather had a literal inheritance claim to the kingdom of Jerusalem, the Crusader state, as well as other fiefs and territories all around the Mediterranean, including Jaffa and Ascalon in Palestine. But the grandfather gets Gak murdered in Sicily in 1296 by Catalan mercenaries. As the story goes, he refused to surrender and refused and refused and refused, so the Catalans just wiped the floor with this guy, and Walter's grandfather dies of stubbornness. So, Walter's father takes up the crusading spirit, inheriting all the cool titles. He gets castles and claims to the large estates in France, in Naples, and the Peloponnese, that's Greece, which was at the time controlled by those loyal to France, call it Frankish Greece. And all this is a consequence of those crusading armies rolling over everything from Austria down to Anatolia and the Levant. So our guy, Walter the Sixth, is seven years old, a little boy, living in his family estate in Brienne, when he receives word that his father, like his grandfather before him, has been killed. It went like this. His father had gone to Greece to claim up his right to the Duchy of Athens, A court of law had adjudicated in his favor that his claim was the most valid. But the other Greek lords in town were intent on stopping this succession because they were pissed at the Crusaders. They were really not happy with them. The Crusaders had just sacked the Orthodox Christian capital, Constantinople. 
Christian on Christian violence. Come get your boys. They, the Greeks, wanted the French bastards out of here. And soon a battle was waging. The local Greek lords backed by the enraged Constantinople. Walter's father hired a nearby company of unemployed mercenaries that were just limping back from Anatolia, these mercenaries having just gotten completely thrashed by some Muslims whose tribe was called Ottoman, whatever that means, and they were now looking for work. They were the Catalan Company. These guys, no joke, were the same guys that had killed his father. They had become a mercenary company and ran around fighting and losing, and the father hires them to root out his Greek enemies for him and conquer Athens on his behalf. And the Catalans did it. The duchy of old Athens was back in the family. But in a thoroughly medieval cliche, Walter's father refused to pay the mercenaries who had just won the battle for him. Not paying the unemployed professional killers who just fought and won a battle on your behalf, not smart. The Catalan company rose up against him in rebellion. Actually, the mercenaries were totally willing to make peace, but Walter's family was nothing if not stubborn and just flat out refused anything less than total submission. So yeah, immediately the father was served a devastating defeat by his erstwhile hired hands, was overrun and killed during the battle. One mercenary found his body wearing that elegant costumed armor of French nobles and cut his head off, taking it from the battle as a trophy. Nice. This sets us up for our little kid Walter VI inheriting the Count of Brienne and those Naples estates in South Italy, and consequently growing up between France and Naples. And while he's growing up, he's got to be stewing about the death of his father and grandfather, who both died at the hands of Catalan mercenaries. And he's probably scheming up ways to recover the Duke of Athens title, because he's still got a strong claim to it through his dead daddy. And, you know, pride and glory and wanting to avenge them, all that. Plus, God, to be the Duke of Athens and to strut around the Pantheon like you own the place? Who wouldn't want that? I know I would. Anyway, it's 1331. Count Walter of Brienne is 27 years old, and Walter is living with King Robert in his palace in Naples. A brief aside, some notes on geography. When I refer to places in this podcast, for simplicity's sake, I'm going to refer mostly to modern country boundaries and regions or like geographical areas like Iberia or whatever, for the most part. For example, Italy did not exist in the 1300s. It just did not. It's a modern invention. But I'm still going to call the people of the region Italians and I'll refer to Greece and France and whatever. Don't think too hard about it. It's just to orient us spatially. Thanks. This sets us up for little kid Walter VI inheriting the Count of Brienne and some Naples estates in South Italy, and consequently growing up between France and Naples. And while he's growing up, he's gotta be stewing about the death of his father and grandfather. Count Walter is a striver. He wants to live up to the fame and glory of his old family. In fact, to surpass them and reclaim the land that his father and grandfather couldn't hold on to. So he marries the daughter of King Robert of Naples, a very strategic alliance in a very fraught area, and starts cozying up to him, asking for responsibilities. Give me something to do, please. It's a springboard to higher ambition. Walter announces his intention to take back his old 
family claim of Greece, Athens, but he can't really do anything about it. It's just, you know, an intention. And it's a strong intention because who controls Athens still after all these years? Why, if it's not the wily Catalans, who pretty much just stayed there and ruled the place after they decapitated Walter's dad. Small world. But they're a fearsome bunch, and what are you going to do? Back in Florence, on the periphery of this story, the Guelphs are infighting, and to keep things stable, they elect the son of King Robert of Naples as their podesta. And on top of that, Robert sends young Walter VI to go be his vicar in the city to keep an eye on things, more of a diplomatic position. Walter's still doing all the schmoozing and fancy court rituals we touched on last episode. He's living it up in Florence, and he's 22 years old, young buck. But he'd only keep the position for a few months, long enough to brush elbows, attend a few funerals, ingratiate himself. It'll pay off later, because those Florentines will remember Walter as a young dude, ambitious but probably naive with his age easily pushed around. Moving on, it's now the year 1331, and the Pope issues a crusade against Greece, against the Catalans, and big dog Robert, king of Naples, joins the adventure, as do all his little lordly warriors from around South Italy, and that means Walter is going, leading men of his own against his personal enemies, the enemies of his family. It's a dream come goddamn true. And off they go. Young Count Walter leaves Florence to lead the way, seizing Greek islands, landing in Epirus, that's those islands on the west coast, and demanding that they recognize his boss, King Robert. Moving slowly inland, east to Greece, towards Athens, the vengeance is in the air. He's so close now. He continued on, entering the lands of the Duchy of Athens, where his father had been kill-slaughtered two decades prior. It's about as exciting as your life could be as a noble in the 14th century. It's racked with emotion. But the Catalans, those bastards, witnessing the size of the approaching army led by Walter, refused to engage and continuously bravely ran away until they were safely behind the fortress walls of Athens, probably shacking up in the Acropolis, the temple ruins overlooking the city. And that was about as good as Walker could do. He did not have the resources to finish this thing off properly. Siege equipment, money, food, because the local Greeks hated him and sabotaged his supply lines the whole way. Warfare takes a lot of supplies, and the organizational offensive capacity of a 1300s Neapolitan army was dog shit. Right, so he mopes back to Naples, thoroughly blue-balled, but it hasn't been a total loss. He's still Lord Sovereign over all those uh, swank little castles he'd taken in the countryside, and he appointed some French bros to govern them on his behalf. Even if Athens' Athens wasn't really under his control, he's still technically the Duke of the lands around Athens, right? Well, everyone recognized him as such in that peer network of nobles. Technically, he was it, and they called him Duke of Athens. So that's probably giving him some sort of imposter syndrome. Are you really the Duke of Athens if you can't strut the Pantheon? Walter is in a slump. His accomplishments meek, his ambitions unrealized. He's 27 years old. Then our boy Walter of Brienne, and nominally of Athens, but not really, gets a message. That zany Italian city the really wealthy one he'd lived in as a vicar, was in bad shape, 
There was economic turmoil from a trade slump that was happening everywhere. And worse, they had broken the city's treasury, paying for an army to go subjugate the nearby city of Lucca. And that had failed, leaving the city of Florence dam broke. The old Podesta, the son of King Robert of Naples, had died a few years earlier, and they wanted a new temporary dictator to come set things straight. The city of Florence had come to Count Walter for help. Let's back it up a bit to 1300, and the political reprisals and counter-reprisals had not ended with the victory of those Guelphs and the new guild-centered politics from episode one. In fact, the Guelphs had fractured into new factions as soon as they had deposed the Ghibellines. Now, white Guelphs and black Guelphs. Black Guelphs were generally the merchant elite, the big boys, the bankers, and they supported the ambitions of the new Pope, Boniface VIII, because what they wanted above everything was access to the church's money, permissions to handle that money. In fact, the papacy was a real golden goose. All the Catholic polities of Europe paid tithes to the church as religious tribute, the Catholic tax, and even individual persons paid large sums of money as indulgences to buy off time in purgatory, which the church promised them they could give. If Florence was under the Pope's domain, a city within the papal state, the bankers would be a lot closer to that money. The white Guelphs, meanwhile, were the liberty idealists of Florence. They wanted civic and communal freedom, the autonomy of the city, and political dynamism. To them was the most important thing. And Boniface VIII was getting way too involved in temporal earthly affairs, messing about with politics and trying to rein in the North Italian cities. Damned quadrangle getting new ideas. Boniface was clamping down on the chaos of Italian politics and ordered Florence placed under an interdict, a papal censure forbidding the whole damn city from receiving ecclesiastical rites, including burial, a liturgy, and sacraments, which is basically one step below excommunication to the whole city, like everyone. The Pope was playing hardball and using the ideological power to really rein our city in. Then Boniface VIII invited a French noble, Charles, Count of Valois, to come down and stomp on Florence, sort things out, and end the political strife that had, for a century, destabilized the city and was now making it hard to implement papal authority. Damn those restless Florentines. Charles came in, armed to the teeth, and infamously exiled a whole lot of white Guelphs out into the countryside, Yabanned, including the legendary writer Dante Alighieri. Dante was a white Guelph, heavily involved in Florentine politics, and many years before he wrote his Divine Comedy, giving us the still-famous Seven Circles of Hell motif, he was a city leader in Florence. Dante wasn't even in the city to receive his exile. He was in Rome. He had been arguing the city's case when he got word of his banishment, but Dante did not fold so easily. He hurried back to Florence, snuck inside, and started conspiring to restore the white Guelphs, talking to allies and conducting hidden subterfuge. But eventually, Dante Alighieri had to vamoose, because if he was found in the city without having paid the outstanding fine hanging over his neck, he could face the punishment of being burned alive, which seems really harsh. 
Dante enters exile, where he will remain for the rest of his life, bumping all around Italy, France, and some other places, and this period in his life will produce some pretty famous literature. Moving on from the misfortunes of Dante and what's kind of going on in Florence at this time, I really want to take a moment to slow down and establish ourselves. In episode one, we did a sweeping panorama of the history that led to Florence becoming a republic led by guilds. But what about the city itself? What did it look like? What did it feel like? What was its real character? Well, it's a very ornate city. Probably its most famous building is the beautiful Basilica di Santa Maria di Fiore with its Dome of the Duomo built from red and white brick. It's iconic. The city straddles the Arno River and there are these fantastic stone bridges crisscrossing it that are uh, huge and wide and there are like storefronts and buildings and houses on top of the bridge so it kind of like extends part of the city over the river. It's fucking cool. These bridges have survived this whole time, uh, still to today, narrowly avoiding being blown up in World War II. And if I get out there, I promise to do a whole walking vlog tour of the city for all you. And another thing Florence and some of the other Italian cities are famous for are the huge spires or sort of towers, the little thin square things that look like that Manhattan billionaire row stretching up into the sky. What are they there for? They're shooting towers. They're built around the palaces of the wealthy families, and crossbowmen would go up there and watch to see if other families were attacking the palace. Really speaks to the fact that there was a lot of violence happening in and around the city that really uh, necessitated taking large sums of money and building very tall towers to keep an eye on mean neighbors. And as for the people and stylish, high-profile families and bankers, discretion and subtlety were never the order of the day. The nobility and princes dazzled each other with elegant silk getup, imports from Asia that must have cost a fortune, to perform fabulous, elegant rituals and splendid garments. Dante, any picture you see of this guy, he's wearing his cool red-dyed onesie. Go look up a picture of Dante Alighieri. He's dripped out. As was basically every Florentine of means at the time. It was a very colorful time. Vibrant and creative. Visually stimulating in every way that it makes your brain bleed colors just looking at these people. By the 1300s, Florence was really packed, probably about 100,000 of population. If you can imagine that, it was the fourth largest city in Europe at the time, behind Paris, Venice, and Milan. Three quarters of those being within the Italian quadrangle, you can really tell where the wealth is. But not everyone was a citizen in the city, mind you. 100,000 citizens? Uh Uh-uh. More like maybe 20% of that. Citizens were a very special classification. And I love what Ferdinand Brodel, who's like my favorite dude, points out in uh, The Structures of Everyday Life, his famous book, about the reality of citizenship in these communal city republics. Quote, Entering the city gates was like crossing a major frontier of the world today. You were free to thumb your nose at your neighbor from the other side of this barrier. He could not touch you, end quote. And that, uh, quote, a peasant who uprooted himself from his land and arrived in the town was immediately another man. He was free, or rather had abandoned a known and hated servitude for another, not always guessing it beforehand, but this mattered little. 
If the town adopted him, he could snap his fingers when his lord called him. End quote. Uh, snapping fingers, that's to dismiss with contempt. He continues, quote, Though the towns opened their gates easily, it was not enough to walk through them and be immediately and really a part of them. Full citizens were a jealous minority, a small town within the town itself. The signoria, the politics, created two kinds of citizens, one de intus partial and one de intus et extra, full. Fifteen years residency was required to be allowed to apply for partial citizenship, 25 for full. Outsiders were often accosted, mainland peasants who arrived to work in Venice, for example, as conscripts for the galley navy, were hassled with cries of Potroni and Back to the plow, shirkers! The limited concept of citizenship existed everywhere. In Marseille, for example, it was required to live there for 10 years, possess property, and to marry a local girl. Ferdinand Brodel points out that secular education was big in Florence. Starting in the 1300s, yearly 8,000 to 10,000 boys and girls learned to read in primary school, run by a master of grammar. If your society is producing famous works of literature, and oh boy were they, you got to make sure the next generation of Florentines could read. Uh, This is a very fine cultural development. This Florentine pride of literature and literacy meant that it would be the Tuscan dialect of Florence that would be chosen as the official Italian language when Italy formed under one homogenous nation-state in the Garibaldi Revolution of the 1800s. But we're not there yet. Of these 10,000 children, around 1,000 of them went on to high schools studying the Islamic science of algorismo, what we call math, algorithm, and accounting, abaco. After this technical education, the student would be able to read and work with accounts registers of sales on credit, commission, compensatory payments between banking centers or branches, distribution of profits among business partners. Although, from my sources, it seems like high school was only for boys. No girls allowed. Sorry, ladies. After this age, finishing high school at about 15 years old, these children would enter the guilds as an apprentice. Some even went on to higher education, studying law at the university at Bologna. The merchants and upper class were educated and cultured people. They could recite Dante's Divine Comedy by heart, and they quoted it all the time in historical letters that have been preserved, and readily embraced the new arts and the trends that the education inspired, like humanism. Wherever the bankers lived, the artists were not far away. They were the patrons, after all. So this is really setting the stage for the Renaissance, huh? Well, we've got a long way to go until that particular intellectual explosion. On that note, be a good Medici banker and patronize me by supporting me on Patreon at Folk Pie, and, you know, maybe you'll help spark a Renaissance all your own. God, gotta love these mid-podcast plugs, huh? This is like a fucking commercial. This is fucked. Moving on. The city imposed itself on the countryside. When we talk about the city... It's not like it ends at the city walls. I mean, it kind of does, but its power extends far beyond them, well into the countryside. And Florence could not support a city of this side with its countryside. 
which grew uh, very, very, very little food, by the way. It was all vineyards. And the Florentines guarded its vineyards very jealously. Yet notice that they were vineyards affiliated with Florence, not independent villages or towns outside of Florence. No, 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 no. These were Florentine vineyards in the countryside. All the food, by the way, all the grain and shit, was imported from Sicily, just as it had been about a millennium before in the Roman modernity. Cheap grain was grown elsewhere. In our hills, we grow cash crops. But this also meant that famine was not always far away. If the imports of grain were mismanaged, people would die. But that would never happen. After all, our ruling cliques of merchants are brilliant people. Well-educated, right? Here we get to the point that the economy at large is basically in freefall. Everything was contracting. In 1333, a freak flood had engorged the Arno River and washed away their famous Statue of Mars, a symbol of the city that was taken uncomfortably as a terrible omen of things to come. Well, not far from the mark with that one. The real crux came during those contemptible 1330s, when England and France started beefing over the English claim to the French throne. Noble's going to fight. And this was the start of the so-called Hundred Years' War, and it basically tipped Florence over the edge into financial abyss. Why did it? Well, the Florentine bankers and moneylenders from the guild's major arts were reaping tons of money by issuing loans to the sovereign heads of state all over Europe. One of their biggest marks was Edward III of England. He had taken simply huge sums of money from the Florentines on credit. And when this war between England and France broke out, the Hundred Years' War, the bankers found out that Edward was basically insolvent. He had defaulted on all of his loans and... All of their investments were gone. And this non-repayment of uh, huge loans, this default of massive sums of money, started a collapse that began shattering the fortunes of the Florentine banking families, for example, the Bardi. And in the run-up to all this, Florence had been expanding during the fat and happy times, borrowing and lending big money and going into safe debt to hire mercenary armies to subjugate the countryside, their biggest target was the nearby city of Lucca. But the armies of Florence got crushed in a very lopsided defeat. But at least all those English still owe us that money, right? Oh, they defaulted? Now broke, in debt, and with the European economy at large shrinking, they had no way to put up for it. And you know that whole grain import situation? Well, that was fucking expensive also. And the city was experimenting with austerity to cut down on the budget problems and therefore shot itself in both feet as on top of everything, they began to get rats by repeated and recurring big and small famines. And weak and hungry people were fodder for the spread of disease, which tore away at the class of skinny people the pool of cheap labor, and everything started to get more expensive as the overall supply of money dried up. The Signoria of the Republic started to panic. With this total reversal in fortunes, Florence decided to do what was honestly and interestingly quite common for the Italian city republics. Invite an outsider to come and fix things. And the person they chose was fairly reputable. And since he was an outsider, he'd be beholden to those who invited him and supported him, right? 
the urban bourgeois, the guild bankers and merchants and lawyers of the major arts. The word was sent out to summon one Count Walter Brienne, fresh on return from his bumbling expedition to Greece. He would lead the city out of this turmoil. At least, that was the hope. Drumroll please, the story of Walter VI in Florence. Now, having caught up, we enter the Duke of Athens crisis. The following events of 1342 and 1343 are known to us through Giovanni Villani, a Florentine chronicler who wrote Storia Fiorentina. So this guy is our historical source. Villani was himself a banker, as many influential and educated Florentines were, meaning he was intimately knowledgeable about the flows of trade and debt and the consequences of the squeeze Florence was in. But he was a banker, a wealthy citizen, and his chronicle of events is not without bias. In fact, it's basically all bias. There is a huge class tension coming. The upper class were not popular. They were pretty widely viewed as incompetent and unable to navigate huge problems and for sparking uh, the fighting that this needless and expensive and failed war upon Luca caused. On the 8th of September, 1342, the 38-year-old Duke of Athens, Walter VI, arrived, heeding the call with pomp and flourish. He entered the city with his retinue of 420 soldiers, marching in a big spectacle to the Piazza of the Priors, the Guild Government Building. His arrival was eagerly anticipated by the lower classes, that is, those in the minor guild arts, those who were without a political voice, those workers and laborers without a craft, including the most radical of Florentine workers, the wool carters, the ciampi, and the unemployed and hungry. They put their hopes in Walter that he could sort everything out, and they ran the gauntlet of the city, painting his family crest on street corners and columns, so that the emblem of his nobility was everywhere. It was to say, Walter the Sixth, Florence is yours! So allegedly, when our guy Walter the Sixth shows up, he demands that Florence make him ruler, not just to resolve their crisis, but for life, and then had the rest of the priory councillors removed from their posts, stripping down the Republican structure to basically just himself, kicking it high and lordly in the old priory building. Here is how Giovanni Villani describes it. Quote, Incited by certain wool carters and people of the lowest classes, the crowd began to cry out, May the Duke's lordship be for life, and long live the Duke our lord. He was lifted up bodily by the masses who wished to place him in the palace. On finding it locked, they began to cry, Get the axes! And so the door had to be opened, and so by force and trickery, they placed him in lordship in the palace while shamefully moving the priors to the chamber of arms in the lowest part of the building. Some of the masses tore up the book containing the ordinances of justice, and also the banner of justice. They raised the dutes banners on the tower while the bells rang, end quote. Our boy Walter VI, firmly entrenched, invites his relatives and loyal Burgundian mercenaries to the city, and they took up residence, spoiled by Walter's newfound power to embezzle Florence's city funds. He used the city's money to host tournaments and championships, give parades and festivities. In a swag move, he also made peace with Luca and gave up the goal of taking the city, kind of the reason he was invited to the city in the first place. Instead of leading a glorious new army, he just waved his hand and said, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. 
Bar, settle down. All the elite bankers and their ilk were starting to seriously regret inviting this guy to solve their problems for them. Giovanni Villani's description of her boy is, quote, a lord of little consistency who did not keep his promises. He was greedy, avaricious, and lacking in grace. He was small in stature, ugly, and with a little beard, end quote. Damn. Then Walter the Sitz and his men set up a brothel. Another quote, he and his men began to use force and do villainous and obscene things to the wives and daughters of the citizens. For the love of women, he gave ornaments to the women of Florence and created a place for women of easy virtue from which his marshal drew much profit, end quote. According to Villani, he's pimping out all the city mothers and setting up brothels. The city fathers are like, hey, those daughters are our property. You won't even give us a cut? In the parlance of our times, yikes. 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 Now, whoring and smoozing aside, what the bankers really didn't like was Walter's new system of taxation, which came down heavily on the most well-to-do. Generally, Florence had taxed based on the use of salt, a classic salt tax. You need it for food. You need it for, like, basically everything. And that meant that the poor, as a caste, paid the majority share. But to close up the budget, Walter the Sitz started coming for the riches of the urban traders, and this was outrageous. Then, oh, Walter began executing some cunning political moves, the kind of stuff that could be called downright Machiavellian. To cement his power in the city, he turned his back on the wealthy ruling families and instead looked to those low classes. The skinny people, specifically the wool carters, the Chiampi, and began a plan to secure their loyalty. The wool carters, the Chiampi, were specifically a down and out and angry sort. They were critical in Florence's wool manufacturing trade, but kept out of the powerful wool guild. So they would exist as a pool of desperate working laborers, not secure craftsmen. Their job was carding wool pulling it, essentially, with uh, cards with hooks in them to straighten out all the woolly strands in preparation for it to be spun, which was an actual guild job. The Chiampi survived on uh, wages and handouts, dependent on the charity of the church and hospitals. And Walter would change that. On his orders in 1343, the wool carters were now allowed to form guild associations, as well as wool dyers and soap makers with them. And they did. The wool carters were finally allowed to form their craft art associations, choose journeymen and masters from among themselves, and have legitimate formal meetings. It felt like the winds were changing. Okay, this is a real turning point for Florence. The expansion of the enfranchisement to the wool carters and dyers? No one had really recognized them as a force before. Everyone just kind of ignored them and kept them down. They were a big population, no lie, but just a replaceable division of labor, not an art, or so the Florentines thought. And Walter the Sitz, our conniving count, was probably just using them, by promising them the right of guild association and easy handout he could do, they would be loyal to him. If Walter was pushed out, they would riot on his behalf. They wanted to keep their privileges, and now he was their guy. So he's tying their fate to his own. This is honestly pretty superb political maneuvering. Who knew a French noble would have it in him to navigate the wild and wacky Florentine political space? Well, maybe we're giving him more credit than his due. It didn't turn out so good for Walter. 
This move enraged the elites, major guildsmen, and powerful families. At this point, it was dead clear that Walter, Duke of Athens, was installing himself for the long haul and finding his own sort of liberty of action outside the conditions of the Fathers of Florence. Make peace with our enemies? Turn our people into prostitutes? Tax us and turn our city into a playpen for chivalrous theatrics? We sleep. Give rights and privileges to the poor? Wait just a goddamn minute. A conspiracy began amongst the wealthy to dislodge this Trojan horse duke and drive him from the city or kill him, whichever was easier. And seriously, they had to move. The sooner the better. Every day that passed, they risked the situation coming to a nice, resting normal. They had to strike in the chaos. On the 26th of July, St. Anne's Day, the plan was carried out. Here is the order of events, according to Villani. Quote, Certain rascals should feign a scuffle and cry out, To arms! To arms! End quote. And so they did. The city was cowed and fearful, confused. What was happening? And immediately, all ran pell-mell to grab their arms and weapons and then convened on horse and on foot, each arranged by his own district and neighborhood, pulling out banners with the arms of the popolo and the commune as planned, and crying out, quote, Death to the duke and to his followers, and long live the popolo and the Florentine commune and liberty, end quote. The popolo, meaning the people, is how the bankers defined themselves against the old feudal lords, and the slogan never went out of vogue. What erupted was a series of fierce street battles, led by the families of bankers and merchants, the Adamari, the Medici, and the Donati. The Florentines broke into the prisons and freed dissident captives that had been locked up by Walter. While the duke had men, the Florentines poured out by the thousands. The spread of families and their network of loyals bearing arms like swords, spears, wooden poles, pikes, and iron axes, it was an uprising. Quote, by day and by night, they fought with the duke's men in the palace and on the piazza. There were quite a few killed, but many more wounded by the thick hail of arrows and stones that came from the duke's men in the palace. But in the end, by that same evening, the duke's men on the piazza could no longer hold out and lack provisions. They left their horses and most fled within the walls of the palace to join the duke and his barons, end quote. Walter had been cornered. Through the walls of the palace, the leaders negotiated with Walter to give up, except that he had been defeated and leave the city. But... He remained stubborn. However, the Burgundian mercenaries, Walter's own men, told Walter they did not wish to get torn apart by a bunch of pissed-off Italian bankers and their club-wielding wives, and if he wouldn't surrender, they would hand him over. At this point, you have to consider Walter's family history. His lineage was a stubborn bunch, stubborn like rock. They sooner accepted death that give in to fair negotiation. His grandfather had refused to stop fighting and died for it. His father had reneged on his obligations and refused to settle with those mercenaries, so they killed him. And Walter was facing the decline of his family's estate. And giving up now meant that he would lose his new power over Florence. It was a critical moment. Does he remain stubborn and die like his progenitors? The outraged Florentines were beating down the door outside the palace. In fact, in this moment, Walter changes that family curse and decides, against the odds, to face the music. He knew he was beat and that the walls had closed in. He decides to flee. 
So Walter runs out a tiny little trap door in the back of the palace, barely escaping the city with his life. But he does have his life, and he doesn't stop running until he reaches the countryside with the dark silhouette of Florence on the horizon and all its domed, inspired glory. He couldn't tame it. Goodbye, Walter. We hardly knew you. The Duke of Athens is banned from the city. To the citizens of Florence, this was a terrific achievement, avoiding the fact that they'd invited him to the city in the first place and kind of just had to undo that. And the day was remembered as the Day of Libertas in the city's history. Hmm. Liberty in this story has a funny ring to it, doesn't it? Whose liberty was it? Not the Chiampi's. For the wool carters and poor guildsmen, it was a big letdown. But they'd had, for the first time, the feeling of being wooed for their opinion and being treated like real popolo, not just wool carting wages. Then the anger came. When the Duke of Athens was pushed out, the wealthy oligarchs rescinded his proclamations. The Guild of Dyers was flat out abolished. And the new laws were entered, forbidding workers of wool to establish autonomous guild corporations. The wool carters had their rights rolled right back. So it was not their liberty, after all, it really is the old Roman liberty. The liberty of the master to stay above it all. The liberty to enjoy power and command others. Mmm, say la vie. Then the violent riots broke out. The riots were suppressed at first. These were the riots of the disenfranchised uh, wool carters. The gone falling year rolled out to break up the mobs, but the grumbling continued. Now a new character enters the scene. It's 1345, and a young Chiotu Brandini, despite being a simple wool carter, is a dynamite orator and a curiously precinct theorist. His plan is to rebuild the power of the associations by uniting the wool carters, disenfranchised craftsmen, craftless laborers into one big guild, and lead a protest that would give them all the rights of incorporation. And if you know anything about labor history in general, this has a smack of modernity to it. Those most forlorn and poorest laborers forming a union for themselves? This is like the Florentine IWW, the CIO, or the CNT. Well, I'm honestly sad to say it did not go well for them. Chiuta Brandini was indeed a competent leader. He fermented a protest strike and called for a, quote, brotherhood of artisans and workers, end quote, by street meetings in the piazzas of Florence. But maybe Chiuta was a little naive, thinking that the game would be played fairly, that he could challenge the power without the hammer coming down. But the reaction was immediate. The Popolo Grosso, the big bourgeois, still shaky from their encounter with Duke Walter, were extremely vindictive in dealing with the uppity wool workers and their street leader. Chiuda Brandini was grabbed, arrested, hastily judged, and then quickly executed. So quick, in fact, if you'd blink, you'd miss it. Damn, executed, huh? Just for trying to organize all the poor into a club of their own? That idea was so offensive and apparently dangerous that the reaction was a secret police-esque grabbing and disappearing, a quick and quiet murder. In the primordial industrialism of medieval Florence, we see that some of those are starting to grasp at the power of protest and the importance of organizing syndicates for those who turn the gears of wealth. And that the big brokers of power and ownership were violent and vindictive in keeping total control, and not above depriving others of their liberty, and life, just to can anything resembling fairness. This won't be for nothing, however, the 
martyrdom of Ciuta Brandini, the elites of Florence were rattled by this radical move that followed the Duke of Athens. And to head off any more striking or street meetings, they allow some of the lower middle guilds to enter the realm of politics, where their agitation might be diminished and sort of absorbed by the system, where they can give them a seat in the halls of power, but say, hey, don't speak too loudly, be polite, and also use the process. It's a sort of like a controlled opposition. A classic dynamic, by the way, a limited hangout, sort of. Let the plebs have a little democracy to calm them down, but, oh, keep the power. You know what, friends? Next time you're enjoying a drink, remember the name Chiuta Brandini, and pour a little out for our early syndicalist leader. I know I will. This guy whose story reads a bit like Jesus, suspiciously like Jesus, if you ask me. Try to lead a party of the poor, and the Roman governor gonna crucify you. Same as it ever was. Another aside. Women's problems in Florence. Notice there are not a lot of women in this story. You may have noticed. Well, Italy in the Middle Ages was about the lamest time and place to be a woman as you could imagine. They basically existed as property to their fathers or husbands. It was probably the worst place in the whole world at the time. After all, you could go to the Americas or Sub-Saharan Africa or multitudes of village societies across Asia in the 14th century and find vibrant societies where women were not ideologically abused, but in fact were leaders with their own diverse structures of knowledge. Of course, Italian women suffered from age-old social problems beyond their control, the residue of Roman ideology of patriarchal authority that remained from the old empire in people's mentality, and the Christianity which said, much like nature, women were more or less created by God to serve the men. So that's a tough bargain. Progress is not linear in that regard. It gets better and worse in certain times and certain places. So there's a problem here when what we're analyzing is, no joke, a men's world. And that's no accident. We are gazing purposely into the history of power and money. Expecting to find women there would be like telling a story about the state imperial origins and asking, hey, where are all the indigenous people and freedom? Uh, not there. No surprise, we are not going to find a lot of women in our story unless we go specifically in search of them. Because of the ideology, even when they come into the story, they're almost invisible. And because this is a story about capitalism and princely powers, I gotta point out that women in this context are the exploited class. If the Chiampi wool worker is the uh, periphery and worker to the finance and manufacturing guild's core, then the invisible woman is the periphery to the periphery, doing the unpaid, unacknowledged work child-raising, dinner-cooking, household and money management, so old boy Chiampi can collect his low wage. The system cannot exist if these women, the periphery of peripheries, were properly compensated for this, so it must be hidden. This is a challenge to illuminating the story of humanity for sure, but as God is my witness, I will give it my best shot. Moving on. But something else was coming for the city of Florence. In fact, it was already on its way. It was the bubonic plague, the Black Death. And it was coming on the ships from the east, causing terrible sicknesses, sores, lumps, and finally death. It was a casualty like nothing in memory, like precious little in history. The population dropped by half. 
dropped dead by half, many dying and many more fleeing into the countryside where they waited out the sickness. The poor stayed where they were. The rich Florentines and other Italians went to distant manors, locking themselves in splendid isolation, having food delivered by servants. <clears> hmm, <throat> reminds one of COVID lockdowns and Uber Eats. A quip about the plague comes to mind. John Paul Sartre said, quote, The plague only exaggerates the relationship between the classes. It strikes the poor and spares the rich, end quote. And how? In Savoy, it's recorded that a rich family would install a poor woman inside their carefully disinfected houses for a few weeks to see if the house still carried the plague. Sort of like a guinea pig. Now, the Black Death, called Pestis, the pestilence of the 14th century, is remembered to us English speakers as a disease that struck Europe. Indeed it did, claiming the lives of a good 40 to 50 percent of the population on the European subcontinent. It shook up the social order and the economic reality, to put it lightly. But it wasn't just the Europeans that it ravaged. Indeed, it killed probably around 200 million people worldwide, and it came on the back of an interconnected world. The Mongols had been rolling over China, India, West Asia, boom, back to back to back, and evidently carried it with them because it was used as a weapon of biological warfare. When armies of the Mongol successor, the Golden Horde, gave up besieging the Genoan colony, Theodosia, on the Crimean coast, they tossed diseased bodies over the wall as one last fuck you. Those diseased bodies, by the way, were patient zero for the European pestilence. This city was a big trade hub filled with Italian merchants connected to the flows of trade of the Mediterranean. And after this confrontation, their trade vessels, zooming all around the Med, as traders do, returned home to Italy in that year, 1347. From there, it spread out of the coastal cities and finding a nice population with no immunities, reeling from the general shittiness of the repeated famines, it spread like fucking wildfire. And the tragedy of the Black Plague was the setting for a classic of Florentine literature. Oh god, I have to look up how to say this fucking guy's name. Boccaccio. Boccaccio is one of the all-time famous Tuscan authors. His enduring work, Di Camerone, is a series of stories told in a villa near Florence during the Black Death. It's like a Florentine version of Arabian Nights. The story is framed upon ten young people who went fleeing from Florence for rural Fiesole, uh, about three miles northeast from the center of Florence. Each of the ten of these young people rules as king-slash-queen for a day and sets the rules for the stories to be told. Uh, for example, the themes of, one might say, virtue. Uh, the rule might be, tell a love tale ending in tragedy, or uh, tell a story of tricks women play on men. Uh, and it's all in the service of distracting themselves from the stacking piles of bodies resulting from the plague. And it all adds up to a hundred stories or poems. And you can find this stuff online and read it today. It's pretty cool. Either find it on, like, Gutenberg in, like, an original translation, or save yourself a lot of time uh, by finding, like, a modern retelling slash abridged version. It's great. Two beats that Boccaccio hits on extra hard are the tensions between the new bourgeois of merchants, traders, bankers, and the old nobility. Also, he talks about the discontent with the church, emphasizing the greed and lust of the clergy. These were powerful feelings at the time, and they really fall off the page. 
It's also a window into that time, how the plague, which killed like half of everyone, decimated the social fabric. It also reflects Boccaccio. How the fuck? What's this guy's name? It also reflects Boccaccio's rather secular view of the plague. He didn't ascribe it to a punishment from God or a heavenly trial to test moral faith or anything like that. In fact, he was consistent in his rather matter-of-fact recounting. There was nothing to learn from it. The pestilence was only to be survived. The disease was aided by the famines and hungers of the previous decade, like we mentioned. All the growing land that had been expanded during the feudal prospering of the past couple of centuries went fallow and was overgrown. The landscape was changed as the villages became abandoned, cities depopulated, and fields reclaimed by swamp and brush. Here's where we get to the economic part, and I want to explain, as best I can, how this Black Plague actually set up Florence to be the premier powerful and wealthy polity in Europe. Long story short, the survivors of the disease, peasants and artisans alike, found that their labor was a lot more valuable when a lot less people were around to do it, and it changed the relationship between their work and pay And in the coming years, it meant that they had a lot more throwing around cash for nice baubles and fancy consumables. Wealthier workers are going to buy cool stuff with their money when all their other needs are met, which would lead to stronger trade routes of imports. And for the Florentine merchants, much higher payoff for all the wonderful silks and spices they carried. All that extra money went whoop, swoop, right in their pocket. And, long story long, it helped accelerate the establishment of England as a real economic colony of Florence. We mentioned at the start of this episode that there were hella bank outposts in England, right? To lend credit to the sovereign. Well, let's talk about England for a second. And I promise this relates to Florence very strongly. In England, the skilled artisans were totally decimated, but life carried on as before, or tried its best to. So they were still doing the same old economic activities of feudal life, namely decorating cathedrals in private manners and fancy monuments, all that jazz. So these artisans, somewhat perversely, found that they were making a killing doing the same old work they'd always done and just raking in the shillings. Their skill was in higher demand than ever. Every landed gentleman was just throwing coin specie at them. And those artisans, with a lot of money, did not have a lot to spend it on. I'll be blunt. England at this time was less developed than uh, most of the world. It was basically a swamp kingdom with some crusty banners. And these middling craftsmen had to look abroad to find things to spend their cash on. They exhausted all the local luxuries, few as they were, and exotic things from northwest Europe were imported to meet the demands for this new uppity artisan expenditure. So the leagues of German merchants on the Baltic coast started shuffling all their goods, the Chinese porcelains and silks and eastern furs, into England and calling up their networks to move even more crap along the land and sea routes so those craftsmen, the woodcutters, the metalsmiths, could wear fancier and fancier hats. But not just England. This dynamic was happening all over Western Europe. The important thing is that this demand had to be paid for, and the reality is that coinage and precious metals in Northwest Europe, that's like uh, lowlands, France, England, were super rare, and there just wasn't a ton of real money. So all their silver pieces that for centuries had circulated around the court and elites of England was moving to the artisans. 
who traded it away for foreign swag, and the result was a siphon on all the gold and metal money, and it moved south in a hurry, to the merchants, through the German and Dutch ports, through the champagne fairs of France, through to the fledgling Italian banks who were still trying to recover, but now finding themselves up to their necks in currency. It was definitely a one-way trade for the English. All their money was being drained out of the country. Ferdinand Bordel notes, quote, England and France complained bitterly about the flow of precious metals towards Italy, but this was the counterpart of the flow of precious metals from Italy to the Levant and beyond, end quote. Indeed, meaning the Islamic world and China were the real beneficiaries, and Florence is striking it rich as a middleman. In the Middle Ages, just as today, China is the engine of the world economy. All the production of cool stuff in the world comes from China and has to be basically humped along the Silk Road into Europe. So, out of the plague, Florence would find itself somewhat stabilized. Somewhat. The calling of the citizens meant that a lot of new men were about to come up in the ranks, who had been waiting in the wings, like the Medici family of bankers, who were now drowning in more silver specie than they knew what to do with. It was a huge boost, an unpredictable consequence of mass death that meant the new Italian banks were in a perfect spot to absorb the infusion. And now, with England short on cash but still sucking in imported goodies, they were once again back to buying shit on credit. Or, hold on, maybe the Italians have a better idea. To forgive the debts of old England, instead of straight coin, they'd take something else they needed. The wool. England sure had a lot of raw wool lying around, especially since England had just colonized the hell out of Wales and was now moving on Ireland. The wool, cheap wool because of its huge quantities, would go in the place of the money, allay the debt of England, and be funneled as a cheap input to the wool manufacturers of Florence, where the guilds were positively buzzing with the news of cheap raw material. Can you sense the long-distance chains that are forming of the peripheries of peripheries of the strong demand for raw wool pushing England to grab up its neighbors and force their new tenant serfs to raise sheep and giving it away for basically nothing to the Florentine merchants to pay off their debt? Debt coming from England, raising funds to go to war to expand its borders and thus its raw resources which could be sold cheap to manufacturing centers in Italy? Oh lord, something's happening. Something big. This is a virtuous cycle, baby. It is spinning up and it's changing the world and showing no sign of slowing down. Standing atop this spawning system were the Medici bankers, ready to make fast loans to wherever brought fat returns. Here we are glimpsing the earliest spark of our capitalism. It's the tendrils of empire arising in conjunction with the profit and finance. Jesus Christ, we will have to keep an eye on this development. But for now, all we have to know is that Florence had recovered, gone through these crises that could have snuffed it out in the cradle, but through luck and hard-nosed dealing had come out the other side in a pretty good position. One that's going to set it up to be the dominant trade and manufacturing hub of 15th century Europe, that's the 1400s, and that dynamic of expanding wealth, the intellectualism of the Florentine writers, the standards set by the likes of Dante and Giovanni Villani and Boccaccio, 
and the institutions of merchant trade banking would start to reveal a looming revolution in mentality. The renaissance is right around the corner now, and you can see why. Things are happening. And a lot is going to happen in the next few years that will show old medieval Florence having echoes of today's world, flying recognizably modern colors in that Tuscan municipality. Woo! This has been a good one. I've had fun. Alright, we're going to wrap it up in a thoroughly 80s movie style. Where are they now? Giovanni Villani, banker and historical chronicler, dies in the popular way of his time by succumbing to the Black Death, even as he was recording its casualties and progression through his city. Duke Walter returns to France after his scuffed and doomed regime in Florence, and in 1348 apparently was able to recover the decapitated head of his father somehow. I'm not sure how it's possible, but I read it. Giving it a good and proper burial, he survived the Black Death, dodged that bullet, but got wrapped up in the Hundred Year War, fighting in the famously disastrous Battle of Poitiers, where the French king would end up as a prisoner of war, and England grabbing a huge swath of French-speaking land. And Walter VI, Duke of Brienne, was killed. He does get a shout-out, though, in Boccaccio's Decameron, which kind of brings us full circle. He was satirized and appears as a character in the stories as a lover of a particular sultan's daughter. Boccaccio evidently clowning on him for his adventurism, connection to the Crusades, and his promiscuity. R.I.P. Walter VI, the Duke who wasn't. And that about does it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Our next episode will be on the Arte de Elan, a rundown on the quirky old guild system. A lot of people like to shit on the medieval guilds, but I'll give them a good shake. And we'll talk about, quite possibly, the coolest medieval workers uprising, the only one I've come across that has the vibes of a modern socialist struggle, except that it's the 1370s and no one's read Marx yet. All a testament to the incredible industrializing underway. So that'll be coming out about ooh, two weeks after this one. That's February 6, 2024. Oh, check out the Patreon, Folk Pie, and subscribe if it pleases you. It's only five bucks a month, and you'll get some updates on upcoming videos and work-in-progress stuff, as well as polls and updates, and support me while I make these freaky-deaky podcasts. Until next time, to the city of Florence, I'm Liam Noble, and I bid you arrivederci! 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 Arrivederci!